Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 671 with Jake Jacobs. Jake has some fantastic perspectives on how to make change faster, easier, and better. So you'll learn one, how to keep change from becoming overwhelming. Two, the hack to accelerate change. And three, how leaders accidentally kill enthusiasm for change. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we mentioned here, please drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP671. And if you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I recommend you check out our gold nugget email summaries, which give you a nice write-up of Jake's wisdom. You can read in about three minutes. It goes right to your inbox when episodes come out and it unlocks the vault of all such summaries. That's called the gold nuggets over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Jake's story. Jake Jacobs helps organizations, teams, and individuals make monumental changes. He's worked in 61 industries from high tech to manufacturing. He's consulted for 96 organizations from Fortune 50 to community theaters and supported more than 210,000 people in changing strategy, creating cultures, and mergers and acquisitions. Jake has partnered with CEOs, frontline workers, and middle management at Ford, Kraft, and Marriott. He's also helped create change in the city of New York, UK's National Health Service, and the United States Army and Navy. Clients call Jake when they need faster, easier, better results. Big thanks to Jake for sharing his wisdom with us. Big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here is Jake. Jake, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks so much, Pete. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you. And I've got so many things I want to hear from you about uh, how to leverage change. But the first thing I want to hear from you is about your massive baseball card collection. Ah. What's the story here? Well, first of all, we should tell your listeners it's 45,000 cards. So For some people, that's considered massive. For others, it's just puny. But I started when I was about eight and just got the bubble gum and the packages. And then I hit about 15 and decided this was a potential way to send my kids to college at some point. And so I started ordering full sets and not opening them, which took the fun out of it. But at 15, you're kind of moving on to girls and other things. So, uh, So it sits actually in my parents' basement, Pete, all Mm -hmm. 45,000. They're not even with me, but my parents, uh, I moved into a house that I fell in love with a woman five doors down, so I can keep a ready eye on those cards. Oh, that's good. Well, now, 45,000 cards, how much space does that consume in a basement? 
it's a healthy pile. It's a healthy pile. I I think it'd go about waist high. And if you if I did the splits, I'm not terribly flexible, but if I did the splits, it'd probably be about that far wide. Okay, understood. That is that's substantial. And then in a basement, are you worried about flooding? What's what's the no, estimated no, value no. you think no. on this uh, collection here? Now, you haven't met my father, so okay. <laughs> there's no flooding in that basement, brother. And I do have several Mickey Mantles and no one card when the Padres were going to move to Washington. Nobody remembers this, but in 72, they were going to move to Washington, and they printed 500 cards with Washington on the card. And then they decided not to go to Washington. So I've got one of those 500 cards. So... Who knows? Neither of my kids ended up going to college. Yeah, hot dog. <laughs> There's just so much there in terms of, <laughs> do you view these as an economic type investment or do you go and look at them from time to time? I'm just fascinated by people with big collections. Yeah, on podcasts that I'm on generally, Pete, I refer to the economic benefits because some people think that I'm crazy having that many baseball mm. cards and and possibly even immature. But in my place in the world, that I have a heart connection to them because it brings me back to Mark Rose sorting baseball cards, putting rubber bands around them with the teams and little pieces of paper. And so I, I don't need to open them. And I figure, yes, they'd be worth more if I don't open them. Mm-hmm. Okay, fun. Well, so now we're going to talk about leveraging change. I don't have a great segue there. (laughs) (laughs) Just as sometimes teams change locations and then don't (laughs) change locations, uh, some organizations fail to follow through with their changes. Absolutely. And so can you give us the rundown on when it comes to, to change in organizations, how often do those changes succeed? versus fail and and what's behind that? Well, if you go by the ready reports and this is in the Harvard Business Review, this is in the Sloan Journal. I mean, there's all kinds of books that've been written on this and the common number is 70% fall short of the objectives they set out to achieve. Okay. So that doesn't mean that they fell on their face, it just means that what they set out to achieve they didn't. Okay. And I think I mean, you know, this is going to sound odd But I actually, in 35 years of doing this work, and had great mentors, so this is not all on me. I had some of the mentors who started my field of organizational change, but I haven't had a client disappointed. There you go. After all that time and all that work, and I think part of it, Pete, goes back to like a never say no attitude. Mm -hmm. So. If we haven't gotten done what we need to, then we're not done with the work that we set out to achieve. And so that notion of continuous improvement and hanging in there. And so when I work with clients, we get very clear on the outcomes at the beginning and what the deliverables are. And that's what we work to. And I don't have a clock going. Some consultants track things by time. I track things by outcomes. So if we're short of the outcomes, then there's work to be done. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Well, Sounds like a, a great consultant to work with. Good stuff. Well, so then you've packaged a good bit of your, your learnings and insights when it comes to change in your book, Leverage Change, Eight Ways to Achieve Faster, Easier, Better Results. So can you maybe 
Hit us with a, a, a power punch to start. What's a particularly surprising, fascinating, counterintuitive discovery you've made in your decades of work on change when it comes to change? Like, what's something most of us don't know but should know about this? Sure. So, Pete, what I would say is that you, your listeners, people who've written about change, studied change, practiced change, both been changed and changed others, that's what they focus on is what's going to be different? What's changed? What's going to be different? And, and you know, at face value, it makes sense. I mean, it's what you're trying to accomplish. So why wouldn't you focus on it? I talk with my clients about what not to change. Okay. Now, this is a different perspective. It's a uh, what I call a paradoxical approach. So each of the levers in this book states a common problem that organizations and people bump up against when they're trying to bring about successful change. And then I have a lever or a strategic action, a high-impact action people can take to remedy that problem. So in organizations where there's too much change, a lot of people talk about change fatigue. It's like, mm-hmm. uh, there's one more coming down the pike, and what people hope for is this too shall pass. So maybe we can get another leader and survive this change effort. Mm-hmm. And I have a lever that's called pay attention to continuity. Okay. So what not to change? And what I tell clients very simply is to make a list of all those changes that are going to occur in their organization. And they make a list. It's a couple of flip charts long, and it gets a little depressing in the room because mm-hmm. it's overwhelming. You're surrounding yourself by all of these things that you've got to do differently. Then I tell them, all right, we're going to change gears. Now what I'd like you to do is make a list of all those things that are going to stay the same, Mm -hmm. that are based on continuity. This time I want you to make the list twice as long. Okay. Well, people have a lot of ideas once they start thinking about what's going to keep going the way that it's always been, whether it's who they work with, how they get paid, where they work. I mean, all kinds of things stay the same. But once they see this continuity lever, it shifts the energy in the room. It shifts the purpose that people have, the, how driven they are going to work. It changes the organization. And I think that all of this focus on change is good and right. And it's half the story. And it's like trying to put a jigsaw puzzle together with half the pieces. You you get a great picture of what's on half that front of the board, but you miss half of reality. And so that's one that I think has been really powerful with people that I've worked with. Well, yeah, I mean, that sounds powerful right there in terms of just the feelings you get when everything's changing is kind of uncomfortable. It's sort of like a, a rising sense of, I don't know, dread, anxiety, overwhelm. Those are good words. And then when you, when you think about all the stuff that's going to say the same, it, it almost makes you feel like at the after that, it's like, oh, no big deal. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, so I, I still got the same boss. I still got the same colleagues. I still get paid the same amount at the same frequency. I go into the same office. I use the same computer. Uh, oh, but a couple of the software programs we're using to insert inventory orders or whatever is going to be different. Okay. <laughs> it's like, what are we so stressed out about? Game on. Yeah. And it really is. I think it's an emotional thing. I think that change goes to the heart of empowerment. And I've had clients tell me everybody minds being changed and that people don't necessarily mind change. And so if I've got my hands on the steering wheel 
that I'm starting to make some decisions about my future, and I see that some of those are repeating the past, I think the way I describe it is that people find much firmer footing on that continuity side of the cliff, if you will, and they get a much firmer push off into the unknown future. And so you can be a lot more confident about how far you're going to get because you've paid attention to the continuity. So when I even have executives give town halls or they do communications, uh, I had a client once that literally in the working sessions that we held, uh, it was about a rapid growth strategy and they needed to change a lot of things about how they did business and their roles and relationships and all kinds of stuff. And in the meeting himself, he made sure that every time they worked on an issue around change, they worked on the same side of the issue, but dealing with continuity. Mm -hmm. And it was a very powerful session because it gave people permission at some basic human level to reclaim what was theirs. And I think that envisioning and creating our futures is the most powerful thing that we can have and making that possible by reminding people of the things that are going to stay the same makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, well, heck, Jake, let's just get into it. That's one lever, and that's beautiful. Uh, you've got eight of them. Yeah. So you tell me, should we just maybe do a, a quick overview and then dig deep into perhaps two or three more that make a world of difference for a lot of folks? Sure. I'll tell you what the problems are yeah. that people bump up against. And then just a short bit on the lever, because I think there are a few that can lead to immediate action that people can take. Uh, levers can be used by individuals, teams, organizations. They can be used with existing methods that people already have in place. And it's like, no, no, don't give that up. Build on it and turbocharge it. They can be used at the beginning of a change effort or in the middle. They can even be used as informal tools where you don't have a formal change effort, but you're just looking to do business in a new way. Because the subtitle of the book says, eight ways to achieve faster, easier, better results. Mm -hmm. So if you're into faster, easier, better results, these are good things for you. And let me say one quick thing, Pete, because Pete, people may wonder, why levers? Like, what does this mean? And it comes from a story about Archimedes was a third century BC Greek mathematician. And he was known for describing the power of leverage by saying, give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum on which to place it and single handed, I shall move the world. Mm -hmm. And so I believe people can move their worlds in the arena of change by taking these levers and putting them under the right results with the fulcrum and making change something that can be faster, easier, and better. Excellent. All right. Well, let's, let's hear some levers. Well, problems and then levers. So change takes too long. Now, this is one that you hear a lot from leaders, and there's a lever, and I think I can talk more about this, which is think and act as if the future were now. Okay. Right? That's number two. To, we've got one, people reject your approach because it's not invented here. So a lot of people say, have you ever done this in my industry? Have you ever done this with an organization my side? Have you ever done it? And the answer to that is design it yourself. 
Mm-hmm. There's a lever that talks about taking the best of what you've used and actually looking back at your own organization's capabilities with change and putting that into place. So design it yourself. There's people don't know enough to make good decisions. In a lot of organizations, leaders appear to be making decisions that don't make sense to frontline employees. And frontline employees are taking actions that leaders throw up their hands at. Mm-hmm. And so this whole notion about not knowing enough I have a lever called create a common database, and it addresses this directly. And I've got a great story about that one with a client, too. Then we've got all change efforts must begin from the top. So this is one of my favorite ones, because every consultant will come in and they will say, start with the senior executive team, get them on board, then cascade this through the organization. And one needs to be transformed before they transform others. Mm -hmm. This is the way it goes. Well, I say start with impact, follow the energy. So that means start where you can make a difference and then follow where people want to do the work. And that's a very different model than the waterfall approach that's quite common. So many ask what's in it for me. So anybody who's been in an organization may recognize the WIFM way of talking about this. That's what's in it for me laid out in letters. So the what's in it for me, a lot of people see this as a problem, asking the question, like it's selfish, like there's something wrong with the person asking it. And I look and I say, no, this is a normal human reaction. This is not unreasonable to be asking what's in it for me. So the lever that I developed to address this is called develop a future people will want to call their own. And if I develop a future that I want to be part of, then the what's in it for me question comes off the table. Okay. No longer is an issue. People get to only do the routine work of their daily job. Now, I'm not saying that that's unimportant, but what I'm saying is that people yearn to make a significant contribution in their lives, whether it's in their places of worship, in their families, in their communities. It's also true at work. And so finding ways for people to make a meaningful difference is another one of these levers. And then the last one. So people's plates are already full. Mm -hmm. You hear this all the time in organizations. They're like, I don't want to take on change. I've already got enough to do. And I have a lever that reframes this to say, make change work part of daily work, that it shouldn't be another item on the agenda. It shouldn't be the meeting on Friday afternoon. You should be looking at it every day and everything you do, and that will actually change both your paradigm of what's going on, but also your experience of it. So as opposed to this extra bolt-on thing, it is rather the thing. Yeah, and it's part of it. I had a client that was a team and they were looking at improving their performance and they did an assessment and I was working with them instead of somebody else. And so they were like, well, let's put a team, sub team together, a committee, and they'll study this and all this extra work Mm -hmm. that people resisted. And I said, no, no, let's make this part of your weekly meeting. Every week, we're going to do something that improves your performance whatever it may be. And we started out taking part of the next meeting with feedback and the boss getting feedback first and deciding what to do differently. But rather than separating change as another event, another item that I got to deal with, make it part of daily work. Okay, cool. Well, so let's hear about the common database. You say I've got a great story there. Let's hear it. Yeah. So this was in a merger and acquisition. 
And in that merger and acquisition, they needed to get a lot of people on board with the culture change. One of the organizations, I'm not going to be mentioning the organizations, but was a little slower, a little less rigorous, and worse performing. Mm-hmm. And the other one was on the better side of that coin. So what we needed to do was get everybody up to speed on what was going on with the merger and acquisition. What we had were meetings. These actually took place around the world, 200 people at a time, but they don't have to. You could do this with 10 people around a table. But what we did is we taught the frontline people about convertible bonds and debt and floating interest rates and all these things that you know the CFO and their people should be paying attention to. But what they were asking of these frontline people would not make sense unless they understood these business terms. Mm-hmm. And so they got a mini MBA as part of these sessions. And that's about people knowing enough to make good decisions. And so that common database, it's different for everybody. I mean, I do these LinkedIn videos, and one of them that I put up recently was, do you know something that somebody else should know? Don't keep it a secret. Mm-hmm. So this basic question of, you know, do I know something, Pete, that you should know to be able to do your job better, then it's my responsibility to reach out and make sure that you know it, rather than being too busy with my own work, or we're having these senior leaders say people aren't getting on board. Well, they don't have the information you do. Yeah, They don't understand what the payoff is if we make these numbers this year instead of next year and how much money we save and what their bonus could be. And all those questions, I think, in that situation needed to be information everybody knew. So you get a mini NBA if you need it as part of the work that I do. And that's intriguing. And and I recall, boy, one of my very first internships, my boss, Kevin, we were working in channel strategy for uh, electrical components in terms of like, how can we get distributors to sell more of our stuff? Basically, is what we're trying to figure out. Good internship. And he mentioned numerous times how he did a training in finance and that he thought of it again and again and again with regard to what shows up with like the share price and the earnings and the expectations and how things bubble up. And I thought that was interesting in that that's not sort of directly essential to know that. And yet everything in you hear from the CEO just makes a bit more sense forever. Like when you have that internalized. And I want to hear you elaborate on how the frontline workers understanding the convertible bonds improved what they were doing. Well, for one thing, it shifted their motivation immediately. Because if you understand that if you pay off that debt sooner, you save money for the company. Mm-hmm. And that money for the company, yeah, it'll go into innovation and it'll go into next year's budget, but some of it was going to go into their pocket. Yeah. So understanding the relationship between how fast they paid this debt off and what they could buy at Christmas was fundamental. They they didn't understand that. And once they understood that the floating interest rate was there and why was it that they paid so much for this other company if it was underperforming? They understood what it meant to have those assets and what it meant to open new markets that they weren't in previously on a global scale. And so rather than just being U.S.-based, they diversified their risk by going global and they diversified their customer base. And all of these things, which could have been you know, on the rumor mill, 
which is very efficient. It's one of the most effective communication strategies any organization's had. But around the rumor mill, they were like, we paid all this money for this company, and why did we? Look, they can't even do their regular jobs right. And that was the scuttlebutt on the street. Yeah. And when they understood what that new business made possible for them, it just it made a lot more sense. That's cool in terms of immediate motivation for your compensation this year and what you can do, as well as I think just enhancing some trust forever in terms of, okay, our senior leaders aren't morons. In fact, they had a deep understanding of this thing I'm just now learning about that has implications for what we're up to. And okay. And and I see how I I fit into this. So even if there is not that direct connection to what could I buy at Christmas, there's a huge, I think, emotional energy lift that, that occurs there. So that's beautiful. Thank you. Sure. One other thing I'll just jump in with, Pete, is this is not just about people who don't have to do with finance getting financial information. This is like even about what I do on my daily job and having information. So, you know, years ago, there was something called open book management that came out. And in plants and factories, they would post numbers on production numbers And people hadn't seen those before. They didn't know what they were. So it's not always this big leap in logic to say, well, we should teach somebody who's on an oil platform enough to get an MBA. But it's like within your own team, do you know things that other people know? And like I said, you know, if you're keeping it a secret and you're frustrated that your team's not performing well, then, I don't know, it was Michael Jackson who said, take a look in the mirror, and you might realize that you've got a lot more power in this situation than you thought you did. Well, and just while we're here, what are some things leaders ought not to disclose to more junior team members? Is more transparency, more openness always better, or, or are there some, some guidelines or limits or, or times less is better? Yeah. So there's an approach that I take that really says you can have too much of a good thing, that there needs to be a balance between the sharing of information and the protection of information. And so, you know, I worked with the Department of Defense and there was a lot of information they weren't meant to share with other people. But if I have personal information about your performance, about the issues that you're working on, about your family, about your development plan, there are a lot of things that I might know about you as a a direct report of mine. And it's probably not appropriate to be sharing all of that. Right. It's not helpful. So one of the things I would tell your listeners, and this This answers the question simply, directly, and I would argue correctly, which is, what do these people need to know to do a great job for this business and themselves? And if you can answer yes to that, 95% of the time, it's a good thing to be talking about. Mm -hmm. And if sharing this is not going to make a profound difference to performance of that team or that organization, like me talking about your personal issues doesn't have a place in that, then they're going to be safe sharing the information and they're going to be in a good place to protect what shouldn't be shared. All right. Thank you. Well, could you give us another story about a lever in action that made all the difference? Yeah. So this is the one when I talk about it, Pete think it's most unique. And it's the one about change taking too long, that it being too slow. And leaders happen to complain about this a lot because 
They see what the benefits are, what needs to be different, and they're trying to get things to move faster, and they're not, for whatever reason. And I came up with this lever called Think and Act as if the future were now. So what this means, it's a paradigm shift. you got to think differently. Rather than the future being something that's out there that will occur later, which sounds like common sense, what we're going to do is we're going to get some image of that future, however clear we can be, grab hold of that image of the future, pull it back into the present, and start thinking and acting as if that were our present now. Mm-hmm. Right? So here's a story that I have. There was a group of executives who were in deep debate. They had a day-long meeting set aside to figure out how to come up with a sales strategy in this new market. And they spent the whole morning arguing passionately about it, not as an unhealthy team. I mean, they listened to each other, but they came up with two answers to the question by lunch. And then people started to pick on sides And I could start to see this was not going to be a helpful way to spend the afternoon. Mm. Now, this organization had said they wanted to create a participative culture. So knowing my lever, I said to them, well, what could you do to create a more participative culture around this sales strategy issue? Some of them looked around the table, didn't know what to do. But there were a few of them who said, well, we probably get more salespeople involved in this conversation. And that seemed to make sense to everybody. So they got out their version of a calendar, whatever it was at that point, and they started to make a meeting for next week when they would bring these people in. Mm -hmm. So I saw this as a big fat fastball down the middle to go back to my baseball cards. And I thought, all you got to do is swing, right? Because it's going to make a lot of sense. And by that, I mean, I said, why wait for next week? Yeah, you got your afternoon. (laughs) You said you wanted to make a difference. And if you think and act as if the future were now, if you became that participative organization right here and right now at lunch, what would you do? Be in that future. And they said, well, we would grab the salespeople who were walking the halls here. We would call up the ones that are out in the field. And we probably might even get some customers involved in this because we said we wanted to be bridging relationships with them. And I said, great, set it up for one o'clock, finish lunch, and let's go to work. And what they found in the afternoon was this common database lever came into play. And a lot more people learned about what the issues were. I mean, people on the front lines and talking about a new region of business, they had opened new regions before. They knew what was needed. They knew what was going to be a good or a bad idea. And so by learning that and by thinking and acting as if that participative organization was part of one that they were members of, they came up with an entirely different solution. It was a third solution that nobody in the morning had come up with, but one that everybody in the room, customers included, who were in on the phone, thought, I get a lot more confidence in this being a path to take. And what they found was they opened that new region faster than they'd ever opened another region before. And it got to profitability faster than any region had before. So they came up with a good idea, but it goes back for me to this, well, do we want to wait a week? No, you lose time, you lose money, you lose energy, you lose political capital, all of these things. Why wait to get a better answer when you can start behaving as if you already knew it. 
Oh, that's good. And, and I think it'd be really fun if, if you are uh, a salesperson and, and you, that afternoon who uh, just kind of surprise uh, pulled into a room full of senior executives like, oh, okay, well, uh, I feel kind of special and important right now. <laughs> a little nervous, a little nervous too. <laughs> Certainly. And then that creates all sorts of good things in terms of some of the other levers with regard to uh, they are making a meaningful difference in that work and bring it together. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the levers, Pete, work together that way. So you can focus on one and start to make gains on two more where you don't have to think, well, let me find a meaningful way for people to contribute let me find a way to create a common database. They were working on thinking as if the future were now and, and they got freebies in terms mm-hmm. of what the results were on those other two. That's good. That's good. Well, can you tell us, Jake, what are some key things to not do when we're trying to, to get a change going? Yeah. So one of them I think is the notion that people see change as something that happens to them instead of with them. Mm -hmm. And so if you can engage people in conversations that matter about their future and talk about the meaningful difference that they can make, avoiding those conversations, being nervous about those conversations. I once had a client was a plant and they were going to close. I mean, it was in Cleveland. It was a casting plan. I won't tell you the company, but it was going to close. And so they held a big meeting of 300 people to talk about it. And there's one woman who stood up and she said, look, if closing this plant is going to create an opportunity for my son to work at the plant the next town over, I'm willing to close it here. Place went dead silent. And it's like, was she serious? I mean, that's something that you're not really supposed to be talking about. It doesn't make sense to talk about. And yet, for her, she decided that that was important. So a lot of people, when they deal with change, emotion is something that's off the table. You shouldn't be talking about how people feel. And what she did is she put on the table her bear to her soul. And when I've worked with clients, a lot of times I had a leader once who basically said, we're not dealing with feelings. (laughs) We deal with facts and figures in here. And he was, his people were dying because of the support they needed, and they couldn't even ask for it because he saw it as a sign of weakness. And so if you can create a culture in your team or your organization where people can speak the truth and including their emotions and put it on the table, even this woman, it was a safe enough environment for her to stand up and say, look, I'll put my job on the line. But I think too often we look at change as a project and it's got deadlines and it's got milestones and it's got resources and it gets very cold and calculating and we're dealing with human beings and that's not how we're wired. I mean, sure, you've got to pay attention to all those things, but if you're not looking at people's experience of the change and asking them What's going to make it better? You don't have to have the answers, but if you ask them, they know most of the time what's going to work better for them. And so that ask, and then you got to listen. So, you know, if you ask and you don't pay attention, you're in worse shape 
than if you hadn't asked yeah. in the first place. <laughs> yeah, you don't care. <laughs> like Charlie Brown, Lucy, and the football, and you know, Lucy pulls the football out, and Charlie Brown ends up on his backside. It's like asking people what they need and then ignoring it entirely. Not smart. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Yeah, so this one is actually one that I've used a lot of ways in a lot of places. So this comes from Thomas Jefferson, and it goes back to 1820. And he said, I know of no safe depository of the ultimate powers of society, but the people themselves. And if we think them not enlightened enough to exercise their control with a wholesome discretion, the remedy is to not take it from them, but to inform their discretion. So I think what he was saying is if people don't know enough to be smart about decisions they need to make, then educate them. Yeah. Help them make good decisions. Don't take those decisions away from them. And so I am a big believer in engagement in organizations for all the right reasons. It's not right all the time, but you know, in a lot of organizations today, we err on the side of not informing discretion. So I think that's less of an issue for most people to deal with. But I think Thomas Jefferson in 1820 had it pretty darn well. Thank you. Well, now could you share a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Yeah. My mentor's mentor, Ron Lippett, who people don't believe this, but actually was a significant player in the invention of flip charts. Hmm. I mean, if you want to claim the fame, Ron was at the University of Michigan, and what he studied was the difference between what he called preferred futuring and problem solving. So what he did is he gave two groups the same situation. One of them was to go about it as solving a problem, right? What's wrong? What do we need to do to fix it? The other, he came up with this thing called preferred futuring, which said, we're in our future, and what did we do to get there? And what they found at the end of the study was that people who were in the problem-solving group had less energy at the end, greater blame on other people, right? And they had reduction of pain solutions. So it's like, it won't be as bad if we do this than it normally would. The preferred futuring group was the exact opposite. They were more energized at the end. They took more ownership of the situation and they found innovative solutions to their problems. So this preferred futuring is actually the precursor or the the father of all the visioning work done in organizations today. Until that time when Ron did this experiment, problem solving ruled the day. And this was in the 40s, but he had the insight to say, maybe there's another way. And now it's so commonplace, people would look at you like you had their head screwed on backwards if you didn't think about what the vision for your organization was going to be. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? So for me, I think that my favorite book is a book called The Practical Theorist. It was written by a guy named Al Merrow, and it was written about the founder of my field of organization change. His name was uh, Kurt Levine. And the practical theorist was, Lewin said, there's nothing so practical as a good theory. Mm -hmm. So to make this very concrete, because I think I love this story, and it's very useful for the listeners, he was in Germany before World War II, 
And they used to sit and have coffee at the cafes, if you could imagine. And students would sit with them and they had this wondering, right, about would the waitress remember the bill better before or after it was paid? And what they decided was it was going to be before it was paid. Other people decided after. So they asked the waitress what it was before and what it was after. She could remember it to the Deutschmark before it was paid. She had no idea what it was afterwards. Mm. A woman named Bluma Zygarnik took this on as her doctoral thesis, and it became known as the Zygarnik effect. And what it says is that people have greater recall and motivation to refer to go back to unfinished tasks. So don't tie a bow around something at the end of the day or the end of a meeting. Keep it open and you will find that people will be more motivated to go back to it the next day or the next meeting than if you finish something at the end of the meeting. So a lot of times there's this mad rush to get through the last slide or to get the last agenda item covered. And I would say, don't leave it for next time and you'll find a lot more energy to work on it. That's interesting. And likewise, I think for I know books, movies, stories, TV shows, like if the the story's not quite finished, it was like, oh, what's going to happen? You know, you you just, you got to know and and you keep going. Absolutely. I think a lot of sitcom writers probably studied Kurt Levine before Uh they got into sitcom writing. Yeah. And how about a favorite tool, something you used to be awesome at your job? Yeah. So this one for me is I find that listening is the most powerful tool that I have at my disposal. And it's readily available anytime, place, or with anyone. And when I say listening, I mean listening to see the world through their eyes. And so I talk with my clients about four magic words that they can use whenever they're in trouble. You know, it's like you get a little hot under the collar, you start breathing a little faster, you start interrupting the other person. Like we all know what it looks like for our own version of that. And I tell them, as soon as you start to feel that happen, say, could you say more? Mm -hmm. Could you say more? And that gives an invitation to the other person that they have the floor still, right? And it creates a safe place for that person to go deeper into whatever it was that they were saying, because you're inviting them. So when I give you an invitation, Pete, that says, could you say more? You're going to feel better about sharing it with me. And the other thing does is it interrupts that whole building of interruption and heat and breathing, you know, all those things when we get a little ticked off, well, when you say, could you say more? Well, one thing is they, they see Jake in their face saying, say it. And hopefully your listeners will hear me next time they get in that situation. Mm. But it's very practical advice. I think like this guy who wrote the book called The Practical Theorist, it's like, if you can't take theory and put it into practice, then it's not worth knowing in the first place. All right. And is there a particular nugget you share that really connects, resonates with folks? They quote it back to you often. Yeah. So this one goes back to that lever about think and act as if the future were now. I uh, interviewed people to put on my website, clients, and uh, half of them came back to me and said, you know that thing you say about living in the future and making it happen today? That's been really helpful. And one of the people said, yeah, I went back to my team the next day 
And there was a guy after I said that who was he was like the chief engineer had a whole list of things that he needed to start doing differently if he was going to operate do business in new and better ways. And so that has been something that a lot of people have come back to me and said, you know, one thing for sure that I've taken away from my time with you is that quote and putting that quote into practice. Let's hear it one more time. Think and act as if the future were now. All right. And Jake, if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? I would point them two places. One, my website, jakejacobsconsulting.com. The other thing that I would encourage them to do, if they're not on LinkedIn, I'd get on it. But if they're on it, look me up there. I'm Jake Jacobs. And I've got uh, short Jake on Change two-minute videos that I put up there. There's articles, there's quotes, there's all kinds of material because I believe you go into the world with open arms and the more you share, the more you receive. So it's really important to me to make sure that I continue to push my own thinking and I continue to give whatever gifts I have to other people so it will help them create faster, easier, better results, whatever they may be working on. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, I think that the final challenge is for them to picture a day when the results they're working on for their change effort are achieved. For them to picture a day when somebody who's been resistant to their change work comes up to them and says, I'm really glad I got involved. I'm excited about the future we created. And to picture a day where in their organization, faster, easier, better results just become the way of doing business. It's not something special or different. It's just the way that we operate. And if they could sit back and picture those days when those things are happening, I think they end up getting pulled into the future more by what Ron Lippett would call their preferred future or vision. And less of it is about getting mired trying to solve today's problems. It's much better to get pulled forward than pushed from behind. Well, Jake, thank you. This has been a treat, and I wish you much luck in all the ways you achieve faster, easier, better results. My favorite point of Jake's was about continuity and highlighting what does not change and how that can bring a lot of comfort and security when you're sharing it with folks. And sure enough, I've, I've been doing some changing lately, but I say, hey, you know what? I got the same wife. I got the same kids. I've got the same job. I got the same chair and the same computer. And that provides some comfort. I remember one huge change happened with inside the, the story that comes to mind is, is with the Catholic Church. The Second Vatican Council changed a bunch of things like, hey, the mass is no longer in Latin. It's in the local language of the people and a whole lot of things. And some a lot of folks sort of left their priesthood over that. And some folks would said, everything's different. What is the same? And then someone he brought up the the creed that everybody says in terms of what they believe, like I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, et cetera. And it's like, oh yeah, I guess sort of like the bedrock foundational belief things are all exactly the same. And it's just a number of practices that are different. Okay, cool. And so and this, the story goes the bishop or priest or whomever was was convinced and walked away. It's like, okay, I could roll with this because ultimately the foundational core is still the foundational core. And so that was persuasive in, in that anecdote, if the legend or lore is correct, and it makes a lot of sense that it can create some calm and the ability to stick around with things 
when change is a brewing to share what is not changing. So loving that point about continuity from Jake. Hope you were loving that and more from him. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items you've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP671. Hope to catch you next time in peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.